everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. An article was published recently about using technology to capture digital phenotyping data in HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, or HAND. My guests today are the lead authors of the article. My name is Dr. Rayanne Moore. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. And um, as disclosures, I'm the co-founder of Keywise AI, and I am a consultant for NeuroUX. Um, and I'm Malika Coley. I am a graduate student at the San Diego State University and University of California, San Diego, joint doctoral program in clinical psychology. Thank you both for joining me today. To start, can you tell us more about how this article came about? So life expectancy of people living with HIV receiving antiretroviral therapy is steadily increasing. And with that comes a higher risk of age-related problems. So we're particularly interested in the potential compounding effects of both HIV and aging on the brain. We know that older people with HIV are at a higher risk of HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, or HAND, um, which describes neurocognitive impairments associated with HIV infection. Aging people with HIV are also um, likely to be at an increased risk of age-related neurodegenerative diseases, like Alzheimer's disease and its precursor, amnestic mild cognitive impairment, because of both the effects of HIV and aging on the brain as well as a higher prevalence of disease risk factors like chronic inflammation and hypertension that really complicate their clinical presentation. So where neurodegenerative conditions are commonly associated with progressive cognitive and functional decline, HAND is usually non-progressive. So cognitive and functional abilities may become impaired, but then remain stable rather than progressively declining like they would in a neurodegenerative condition. But aside from the progressive versus non-progressive trajectories, both have really similar cognitive presentations. So for example, they're both associated with impaired memory and impaired executive functions like planning and organizing. And really because of this overlap in neurocognitive profiles, identifying preclinical factors that may distinguish among those with hand versus those on Alzheimer's disease trajectory is fairly challenging. So considering the negative health outcomes associated with cognitive dysfunction um, in people with HIV, like unemployment, medication non-adherence, and depressed mood, as well as the multi-system impact of aging, it's really important to focus work on improving our understanding and treatment of neurocognitive outcomes in this um, population of aging people with HIV. And more than that, trying to then differentiate HAND from neurodegenerative disease pathology um, is also really important to understand the likelihood of cognitive impairment progression and for providing then, you know, effective and, and targeted treatments. Yeah, and as Malik has mentioned, you know, existing tools for measuring cognitive impairment among persons with HIV currently really lack sensitivity. Um, and they're cost and resource intensive. So quite more often than not, you know, existing methods require a person to go to a clinic or a hospital. They have to spend the day doing long, cumbersome neuropsychological testing. They also um, 
quite often have to get invasive medical procedures such as MRIs or lumbar punctures, you know, especially if there's concern for a neurodegenerative process such as Alzheimer's disease. Um, and by and large, people really just are not getting the care they need. Um, furthermore, like early detection is very difficult because initial changes in cognition are very subtle and people often do not present with clinical symptoms until the disease has significantly progressed. So we're really in need of, you know, novel multimodal measurement tools that kind of fuse, you know, subjective data with objective data, fuse episodic data collection with continuous data collection in the real world as people are going about their everyday life to paint a more holistic picture of a person with HIV's cognitive health. Um, so there's this new field of scientific study, which we're very involved in, called digital phenotyping. And digital phenotyping is based on the theory that personal devices like fitness trackers, our smartphones, smartwatches, um, when we use these devices in combination with advanced data analytics like machine learning and artificial intelligence, it can really act as a digital proxy for human behavior. So what digital phenotyping does is it takes data that's stored in our personal devices, data that is just being collected as we go about interacting with our devices um, on a day-to-day -day basis, such as how we type on our phones, our speech patterns, and how we're using the phone. So how many times we pick it up throughout the day, how many times we click on Instagram or um, another social media app or open a web browser, our movement, because all these devices have accelerometers built into them. And it takes us data and we can use this data to diagnose diseases. Um, and currently there's evidence showing that this data can be used to you know, help diagnose um, early onset of Parkinson's disease, as well as mental health disorders and um, depression. And if you think about it, you know, to me it really makes a lot of intuitive sense because smartphones are the first thing we often look at when we wake up in the morning, as we're just joking about, um, you know, it's election week and we've been waking up every hour looking at our smartphones. Um, they're often the last thing that we touch before we go to bed and we're just constantly interacting with them. Um, and, you know, thinking about how everyone has their own unique fingerprint, we also all have our own unique digital signature. And we're really finding more and more that these digital signatures are related to behavioral indicators of health as well as cognitive abilities. So I have an ongoing program of research at the University of California, San Diego's HIV Neurobehavioral Research Program. And through some of our ongoing studies um, and studies we've recently completed, we're finding that there are tremendous potential for these mobile tools in improving assessment methods, um, especially of neurocognitive outcomes among persons with HIV. And that was really what inspired us to write this article. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what technologies or devices can be used to phenotype hand? Sure. So there are several different approaches um, using technology and devices. Like Rianne just mentioned, actually um, using smartphones or smartwatches or different kinds of trackers um, that can be always be used together to create this digital phenotype. So we often think of engaging with technology as either actively or passively. Active being that it requires um, the user or the person to actively engage with the device in order to provide information that can be used later. So an example of active data that can be collected from mobile devices is self-report data um, using ecological momentary assessments or EMA. 
So EMA is kind of an innovative approach to measuring real-world outcomes, and it collects data subjectively, so by the user, um, as well as episodically, so throughout the day, across days. An example of what an EMA question could be would be like, how stressed do you feel right now? And the nice thing from a data collection standpoint is that it involves repeated sampling of behaviors and experiences in real time, as well as in a person's natural environment, which can be used to assess um, like daily fluctuations in self-reported cognition, as well as factors associated with cognition. So things like mood, stress, social support, um, substance use, and everyday activities. Along with EMAs, um, mobile cognitive testing is another example of an active data collection method that can be used to help phenotype hand. So mobile cognitive testing is having someone take tests of memory, um, attention, and some other thinking skills using their mo mobile phone. And it provides the ability to study the impact of someone's environment on cognitive abilities in the real world and in their natural environment. So as an example of how mobile cognitive assessments and EMAs can be used together, um, we looked at the possibility that fluctuations in cognition were associated with real-time activities um, in middle age and older adults with HIV. And what we found is that doing cognitively stimulating activities like working, reading, or writing um, before taking these cognitive tests was related to better performance on the mobile cognitive tests. Whereas doing more passive leisure activities like watching TV related to worse cognitive performance. And so what this study really shows is that using these technologies may help in understanding the different lifestyle factors or everyday um, factors, health factors, and even environmental contexts that might influence someone's cognitive health. Yeah, and in addition to um, the active data collection methods that Molly Co was just mentioning, um, the active data collection methods are more episodic um, and not continuous. Passive data is another approach that can be used to phenotype, you know, physiology and behavior that's linked to hand. Um, passive data includes data that's obtained passively <laughs> and unobtrusively through mobile devices, um, such as smartphones or your wrist-worn wearables. And it can be used in conjunction or independent of um, the active data collection. Um, fitness trackers are what immediately come to mind when I think of a good example of a passive data collection tool that most people are familiar with. Um, you know, they're providing you with continuous objective measurements of your sleep, if you wear it overnight, your physical activity, your heart rate variability, you know, and the, they're getting more and more advanced in measuring all kinds of other physiological metrics these days. Um, to give you a real life example of you know, some of our ongoing work in the lab, we have a newly funded study funded by the National Institute of Aging, in which we're examining whether keystroke dynamic features obtained from a smart, uh, smartphone keyboard. So we don't measure what people type, but we measure how you type it. And we're examining how these keystroke dynamic features are linked to cognitive impairment and risk factors for Alzheimer's disease among middle-aged and older Hispanics with and without HIV. Um, in prior work by myself and my collaborators, we've demonstrated that by applying advanced data analytics, such as machine learning and artificial intelligence, to the continuous monitoring of keystroke features, um, and some of these features include things like, you know, the time between key presses, um, use of autocorrect, 
fact-based usage, and those type of metrics that we obtain um, from how a person is typing just when they're interacting with their phone. So we gather the data when someone's texting or when they're emailing or when they're posting on social media, um, any kind of time they're interacting with their smartphone. Um, and we're finding that these features can elucidate changes in circadian rhythms as well as intra-individual variability that's associated with early neurodegenerative changes. And we do have some evidence demonstrating that keystroke features are associated with um, traditional neurocognitive domains that we assess in the lab, such as processing speed, executive functions, and memory, which, as Malik has previously mentioned, um, these are impaired in hand. It's pretty exciting, and um, I look forward to finishing this study and getting the results out there. Um, and keystroke data is just one example of a promising metric that can potentially be used as a standalone tool. It can also be used in combination with other digital metrics to phenotype hand. And currently, you know, the field of digital phenotyping is still in the early stages. I do see there's some immediate applications for digital phenotyping um, that can be applied to a research setting. You know, people could use ubiquitous technologies um, that are in the hands of most people, especially smartphones. Um, as low-cost, low-burden risk detection tools. Ultimately, you know, we're still, we're not there yet, right? But um, I think ultimately these tools could be integrated into clinical care and provide opportunities for early intervention and reducing healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Neurocognitive disorders are serious complications associated with HIV infection. How might using technology improve patient care? That's a really important question. Um, so using both active and passive technologies, kind of like we've just described, um, to frequently monitor cognition, as well as everyday factors um, that might influence cognition, may help us increase and improve our ability to detect change in cognition, mood, behavior, um, all of which might be indicative of early neurodegenerative disease pathology or HAND. So the real benefit of frequent monitoring is that we're able to get a more accurate picture of someone's cognitive health compared to just like a snapshot every year or a couple years um, when someone might go to a primary care appointment. And also with um, earlier indications or diagnosis of these conditions comes earlier interventions too. So like earlier initiation of medications, um, modifying lifestyle factors that might impact cognition. So that could be like getting more physical activity, improving sleep habits, or eating healthier. And then it can also help with early family planning. And all of these um, might improve patient health outcomes. So this kind of cognitive monitoring might be especially helpful for someone, um, you know, just to give maybe like a more real life example, who knows that they have a genetic marker um, that increases their risk of having a neurodegenerative disease, like Alzheimer's disease, or maybe they have a family history of dementia and they're worried as they're getting older, um, maybe starting to notice some subtle changes in memory that they are um, worried about disease onset and they're looking to self-monitor for early risk factors. So this allows the ability for patients to become more proactive members in monitoring their um, subtle changes in cognition using self-tracking um, of cognition and associated symptoms. And kind of like Rayanne was mentioning, this is similar to how people track things like their personal fitness, which could have an impact on guiding clinical care, treatment planning, um, and life planning. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so what is the overall key take-home message for healthcare providers today? Ultimately, you know, digital phenotyping, I really, truly believe, has the potential to help clinicians detect diseases such as hand you know, and Alzheimer's disease um, sooner and earlier along in the disease course. Um, these digital biomarker tools have the potential to, you know, I think aid with early identification of at-risk, at-risk individuals, as well as improved diagnosis accuracy and tracking of symptoms, disease progression over time, can help with, provide better quantification of a treatment response. Um, you know, and I can also see them having utility for accelerating clinical trials for drug discovery. Furthermore, these tools can reduce barriers to care and, just as importantly, reduce health disparities. Um, we're currently, you know, in this transition from telehealth, which telehealth has really been accelerated by the pandemic that we're currently in. Um, but telehealth is still episodic care, and we're still, and we're going through this transition from episodic care to continuous remote care. I think it's a really exciting time. You know, I can see a future where healthcare is one that incorporates continuous remote monitoring to measure objective cognitive change, as well as provide actionable insights um, to the patient and to their healthcare providers. So, um, yeah, I'd just like to leave you with kind of this mental image. Um, Just imagine like a future where you have a patient and they walk into their doctor's office you know, they're getting their vitals from the nurse, so she or he is taking their temperature, their height, their weight, their blood pressure, you know, and they're thinking their cell phone and their Apple Watch data. And, and then the doctor can use all of these metrics to, you know, really assess the patient's overall health. Great. Thank you again for speaking with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Um, you know, we're really excited about this work we're doing, you know, and as I was mentioning this is um, really an emerging field, but we're, we're currently in this transition time that um, the field is being accelerated. Um, the technology is available. Um, it exists. It's available. It's in people's hands already. And I think it can really make a big impact on um, improving you know, self-monitoring, self-tracking of cognitive health, as well as um, interactions between um, patients and their healthcare providers. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Um, it was a pleasure to talk about our, you know, recent publication. And like Leanne said, it's a really exciting time. So um, thank you for having us to talk about it.